You're listening to a live audio recording from Women's Bible Fellowship at LAFC. Welcome to week 11. Today's teaching is the conclusion to our study on Exodus part 2, chapters 15 through 40. Thanks for joining us. Good morning. So last week, Lindsay brought us to the end of Exodus, and this week, we're going to reflect on the book as a whole, and we're going to celebrate. Your homework started by reviewing some of the foreshadowings and connections to Christ that we've seen in our study. There have been a lot, haven't there? The work of Christ on the cross is the centerpiece and cornerstone of our redemption. It was planned by God before creation. Ephesians 3 says that God's eternal purpose was realized in Christ Jesus. All that God did in the Old Testament was moving to that end. There was no plan A and plan B, no disconnect between the Old and New Testaments. Tremper Longman, an Old Testament scholar, says this, Jesus did not arrive unannounced. His coming was declared in advance in the Old Testament, not just in explicit prophecies of the Messiah, but by means of the stories of all the events, characters, and circumstances in the Old Testament. That's what we've looked at, right? God was telling a larger, overarching, unified story. From the account of creation... I have another slide. Yeah, thank you. From the account of creation in Genesis to the final stories of the return from exile, God progressively unfolded his plan of salvation. And the Old Testament account of that plan always pointed in some way to Christ. So I hope you've not only learned about Exodus, but you have a deeper grasp of the unity of God's words and God's acts in the Old Testament and New Testament. So now you can trace what some people call the scarlet thread of redemption in Christ that runs throughout Exodus and all of Scripture. So you were also asked to review and consolidate your main points from the lessons. Did anyone go back and include the main points from last year? No hands? Okay. Exodus tells how God transformed Abraham's descendants, slaves in Egypt, into a nation on the move with God in their midst, how a family group became a nation and a covenant community. God miraculously delivered the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He guided them and cared for them in the wilderness, and he gave them a legal and religious structure that would mold the community. We've seen how their deliverance and redemption parallels our own salvation, our justification, and our sanctification. Saved from and saved for, as Lindsay reminded us last week. Last year's study, Exodus 1 to 15, was parallel to our own salvation as God delivered his people out of the darkness and slavery of Egypt into the brightness of being his own treasured possession. This year's study paralleled our sanctification as God molded his covenant community and taught them how to live in relationship with him. So we started this year in the wilderness, a frightening new place of training, guidance, provision. God guided his people with a pillar of cloud and fire. He saved them from the Amalekites. He provided water when they thirsted. Most spectacular of all, he began a 40-year-long daily miracle well, six days a week, almost daily, of spreading manna on the ground for them to eat. 
That manna was such a powerful symbol of God's total provision that hundreds of years later, Jesus told the Jews that he was the true manna, the true bread from heaven sent as God's provision for us. Through the wilderness, we learned that God's ultimate aim is to transform us into vessels that display his glory to all the earth, not to make us comfortable. But he never abandons us. He provides for us, guides us, and is present with us so that we can move with confidence and hope through our own wildernesses. Then we came to the covenant and the law. Before God gave Israel the law, he offered them, he offered to covenant with them and take them as his special possession. He didn't have to do that. They owed God absolute obedience already. God chose to covenant with them because he's not only a holy, sovereign God, but he wants to dwell with us and build a relationship with us. Holiness is not a sterile, unappealing existence. Holiness is intimacy with God. The law was a way for God's people to walk in close fellowship with him. It was never a means of salvation. Salvation was always by faith. The law reflects God's character, not just his holiness and our obligation to worship him properly, but his goodness, his desire for justice and mercy, his concern for the vulnerable, valuing life, honoring marriage. And the law was given to form a community, not just law-abiding individuals, but a harmonious covenant community displaying God's attributes to the world. In Exodus, God built a nation. In the New Testament, the covenant relationship is even closer. We are a body with Christ as the head. We have a better covenant with the law written on our hearts. But our call as a covenant community is still to glorify God and enjoy him for all the world to see. We saw the dangers of legalism, using the law in wrong ways. The obedience that God desires comes from faith working through love not from other motives. We first trust God, then love him, then obey him. With a covenant relationship established, God then dictated plans for a tabernacle and a priestly sacrificial system. The tabernacle reflected God's desire to dwell with his people and also his holiness as set apart from sinful humanity. The priestly sacrificial system illustrated both the difficulty of sinful humans coming into the presence of God and God's plan to remove that obstacle. The substituted sacrifice of a lamb foreshadowed the substitutionary atonement of Christ for us. From eternity past, God planned a way for his people to come into his presence. As Lindsay said last week, we were made to live in the presence of God's glory. It is God's desire and our design. Through the tabernacle, the priesthood and sacrifices, the holy days and festivals, God taught the Israelites about worship, substitutionary atonement, entering his presence, recognizing his provision in harvest and reproduction, resting in his work. Eventually, Jesus Christ would be priest, sacrifice, tabernacle, and Sabbath rest for us. The book of Hebrews details how our new covenant far outshines the old covenant. The crisis point of last year's study was crossing the Red Sea. There, God provided decisive, miraculous deliverance for the Israelites and decisive, miraculous defeat of the Egyptian army. 
The crisis point this year was in chapters 32 to 34, the golden calf and the breaking of the covenant. At the Red Sea, God defeated Israel's enemy. With the golden calf, Israel was shown to be their own worst enemy. Can anyone relate to that in your own sanctification? But God has a way to deal with that too. Let's look at the people involved in that golden calf incident and see who we identify with. They're the Israelites, Aaron, and Moses. First, the Israelites. Anyone identify with their motives? They're a mixed bag. Some were probably there just because their family and friends were. Some were testing God and reserving judgment until they saw how well it worked for them. Some just wanted to be comfortable and didn't care which God provided it. Some genuinely wanted to follow Jehovah God. The Levites were in that last group of dedicated worshipers. But as a whole, the Israelites weren't very impressive. Then Aaron, who saw so much of God, he stood with courage before Pharaoh. He performed miracles, led the Israelites alongside Moses. But somehow he lost it, caved into pressure to make an idol, lied to Moses about it. Why did he break faith that way? I pray that none of us here falls into that category of someone who starts well and then falters. But if you feel like that's your story, remember that eventually God accepted Aaron as his high priest. You can start over. And then Moses. He struggled to believe and accept God's call in the beginning, but he grew in faith mightily. By the time of the golden calf, he was passionate for God's glory and God's purposes. Through time spent with God, he knew God well enough to intercede powerfully. And despite all that he had seen of God, the miracles and thunder and lightning and earthquakes and the cloud of glory, it wasn't enough. He asked to see more of God's glory. More. Like, just blow me away, God. He had an unquenchable thirst for God. May God stir in each of us that same desire and thirst for him. Moses, Aaron, the Israelites, human characters, ones we can relate to, but the center and focus of that entire event and of the whole book, really, is the person of God. So many facets of God's character are displayed in this one event. On the one hand are God's majesty and sovereignty, his righteous anger, his perfect holiness and power to judge. But you see also his conversation with Moses, his response to intercession, his willingness to keep working with sinful people, his desire to reveal himself more fully. In Exodus 34, 5 to 7, right after the Israelites' flagrant, defiant sin, rather than God abandoning them, we have the most complete self-revelation of God in the entire Old Testament. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him, Moses, there, and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. This is our God, redeemer, deliverer, provider, guide, covenant maker, judge, protector, sustainer, sanctifier. Each week you've noted what you learned about God and his attributes. 
Take a minute now to review in your own mind the attributes of God that were most meaningful to you. What have you come to know about God in this study? Our proper response to God is to join together in worship and praise. A few weeks ago, Lindsay read Hebrews 12, 18 to 24. The God of Exodus is our God, forever unchanging. But through the work of Christ, we have an access and an intimacy with God that the Israelites never dreamed of. Would you stand and read this passage with me as we begin to worship? For you have not come to what may, you can read out loud. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given if even an animal, a beast, touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. <laughs> 